Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this book of Revelation and for the insight that it gives into what's going on around you in heaven. And Lord, we pray you help us to understand that better this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, these are just a few of the headlines uh, from this week. Sri Lanka floods, scores die as monsoon triggers mudslides. It's from the BBC. Another one from the BBC, Portland deaths, two stabbed trying to stop anti-Muslim abuse. It's from CNN. Egypt, at least 28 dead as gunmen fire on bus carrying Coptic Christians. And then, of course, from The Guardian uh, from late Monday night, at least 22 killed, 59 injured in suicide attack at Manchester Arena. That's just a little bit of what's gone on uh, over just the last seven days. And it's interesting, one of the ways that our culture tends to respond to tragedies and events like what happened Monday night is to write and sing songs. On Wednesday morning, a group of students from a local music school stood outside Manchester Arena and they sang Don't Look Back in Anger by the Manchester band Oasis. And then on Thursday, after a minute of silence in St. Anne's Square, a crowd of about 50,000 people sang that very same song, Don't Look Back in Anger. And just last night at Old Trafford Cricket Ground, a band called the Courtneyers was playing, uh, headlining a show, another 50,000 people, and they closed their show singing those very same lyrics from the Manchester band Oasis, Don't Look Back in Anger. That song has become the anthem of the city's resilience in just the last few days. I remember on uh, September 11, 2001, watching the news coverage and uh, seeing the entire Congress of the United States of America, both houses of Congress, standing on the steps of the Capitol building, and they all went out and sang a great American song, God Bless America. It was an incredible moment that brought hope and security to a nation that was reeling. The truth is, not all songs written in response to tragedy are examples of great artistry and tone. The country singer Toby Keith wrote a song in the aftermath of 9-11, where one of the, you can only call it inspired lyrics, directed towards Osama bin Laden, says that America will shove a boot up his pine parts, we'll call it. After Princess Diana was killed, Elton John actually rewrote the lyrics to a hit song that he had already put out years before called Candle in the Wind, and he he rewrote the lyrics as a tribute to her life. And perhaps the song that's been played the most in times of tragedy is John Lennon's Imagine. And in the song, he's, he's actually imagining a better world. He says, imagine there's no countries, nothing to kill or die for. Imagine all the people living in peace. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. Of course, he finishes with the chorus. You may say, I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. That's how we tend to respond to things 
like what happened on Monday. We sing a song. We write songs. But does a song make it better? Does a song bring anyone back who is lost? Of course a song doesn't do that. But this is what we do. When we face tragedy, when we face trials, when we don't know what to say or what to do, we sing songs. And what we're going to see in today's passage is the, same, the very same thing. When you're at a loss, when you're under immense pressure, when you're suffering, there is a song that you can sing. Well, we're in the second week of a series on the New Testament book of Revelation. And if you were here back in the autumn, you'll remember, back then we were looking at Revelation from the sort of 30,000 foot level. Josh said last week it was like we were looking at flowers while riding on a horse or something like that. And we saw that the book, the book breaks down into these three kind of big chunks. Well, in this series, we're looking at one specific theme that runs through the whole book. And that theme is that there are these two realms. There's heaven and there's earth. And, and what happens in heaven has massive implications for what happens here on earth. And that's what we're looking at in this series, heaven and earth. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it says this, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. And what that verse is showing us is that heaven is a realm that's that's parallel to this one. It's going on at the same time as this realm, as our time. It's also a realm where God's will is done perfectly. It's a realm where God is worshipped completely. In other words, it's in heaven where God receives the attention, where He's given all the glory, by everyone and everything else. And today, we're actually we're going to go with John through that door. We're going to go through the door into that other realm, into heaven. And in that realm, there's a song. There is a song being sung that if, if we were to sing it here, it would change us. It would transform us. And if more and more people on earth sang this song that's being sung in heaven, it would make earth much more like heaven than hell. It would make earth a place where more people live at peace, where there is less greed and hunger, a place where people begin to live as one. But before we go through the door, we need to remember what's been happening here on earth. And here on earth, there's been suffering. Remember, Revelation is addressed and written to seven real churches in history. And some of these churches, they're actually going through hell on earth. This is just a little bit of what's going on in some of them. In Ephesus, they're facing false teachers and hardship. In Smyrna, they're in poverty and they're being slandered. And some are being put put in prison just because they're Christians. In Pergamum, That's the place where it says that Satan himself dwells and has his throne. And it's in that city that Christians are actually being put to death for what they believe. In Sardis, the church there is full of hypocrites. And so the church is shrinking day by day by day. In Laodicea, the Christians Christians in Laodicea, they're so wealthy and comfortable that they've all become complacent. And can you imagine how that must have looked to the churches in Smyrna and in Pergamum 
In Laodicea, they're sipping lattes and they're buying luxuries while in Smyrna, they're worried about their next meal and in Pergamum, they're facing execution. And so some of these seven churches are awake and they're aware of the danger that they face as Christians while others, other churches are asleep and they have no idea of what sort of battle they and other Christians are up against. Or even worse, maybe they don't care. And I want you to see, before we go through the door, I want you to see what's being asked of these seven churches. These churches are filled with people like you and me, with mothers and fathers and doctors and business people and teachers and students and city workers, unwaged and wealthy, educated and uneducated, locals and immigrants, people who are awake and people who are asleep. Every church and every church member is being asked the same thing, though. Every single one of them is is being asked to overcome. To be victorious. Every single one of the seven churches is asked not to run from the trials, not to hide from the persecution, but to overcome. To be victorious. To face up to it. That's what's being asked of them. And do you know what? That very same thing is being asked of you and I. It's being asked of our church. It's being asked of City Church Manchester and St. Philemon's Toxteth and Beechwood Chapel and the Village Church Formby. The same thing is asked of them. Overcome. Be victorious. And you read these seven letters and, and you think about what's going on in their world and you think about our church and you think about what's going on in our world and you think, how on earth are they going to do it? How are we going to do it? Well, that's the question you're left asking. How can we ever possibly overcome? Well, the answer that the book of Revelation gives us is to look through the door. And through that door is a throne. And not only is there a throne, but there is someone who's sitting on it. And just look at how he's described. Remember, we've gone through the door now. Okay, We've gone through the door. And look at how this one who's seated on the throne is described in verse 3. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And this is the only physical description you get of the one seated on the throne. And to be honest, it's not very, what's the word? Descriptive of him. John doesn't tell us about his face or his eyes or his hair color or how long his beard is or what color his clothes are or how tall. He doesn't tell us anything about him. All you can really pick up from this text is that the one seated on the throne is bright and shiny. It seems that his throne is so bright that John can't even look at it. And the one thing that he wants to gaze upon, he can't look at. Have you ever driven your car in the snow on a bright, cloudless winter day? Okay, that's an unfair question because there's no such thing as a bright, cloudless winter day in this country. But I've driven on lots of days like that. And it sounds like, even from this picture, it looks like, oh, that looks like a nice day out. It's awful. It's not a nice experience. In fact, it's incredibly dangerous. Because the light reflects so powerfully off the white snow that it's blinding you. And when the road is covered in snow and there's piles of heaping fresh white snow on the side of the roads, the very thing that you need to gaze at, at the road and at the sides of the road, the very thing you need to look at, you can't. Because it's blinding. 
The amount of times I've driven down the road just holding my eye open. So the very thing you have to fix your eyes on to stay safe is the exact thing you can't look at without burning your retinas. That's what's happening here. The very thing that John wants to gaze upon through the door is too bright. It's too glorious for him to look at. And so his attention quickly turns to see what is surrounding the throne. Take a look. You'll see starting in verse 4 that there's 24 more thrones. And on those thrones are 24 elders dressed in white and wearing crowns. And not only that, but down in verse 6, you see that there's these four fantastic creatures. One is like a lion, another one's like an ox, another one's like a man, another one is like an eagle. And coming out of this throne are flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. Yet, as powerful as that sounds, it's not nearly as impressive as what's in front of the throne. It says in front of the throne there are seven lamps burning. And these seven lamps, it says, are the spirits of God. And we learned last week that the seven spirits who are in front of the throne is another way of saying that the Holy Spirit is before the throne. And so even though the thunder and the lightning all seem incredibly impressive, it pales in comparison to God's Spirit. Well, then there's a sea of glass like crystal, which is a picture of peace and order and calm. And so lest you think this fantastic scene with thrones and bright lights and thunder and lightning and lamps burning and thunder, and and lest you think that is somehow chaotic, John tells us that the scene, though impressive and powerful, is also calm and orderly. And what is interesting about all of this is that if you ever met one of these four creatures or one of these 24 elders, you'd be tempted to bow down in that moment and worship them because they're so fantastic and so glorious. But you notice not one of them is being worshipped. Not one of them is receiving anything. They're not receiving worship. Not one of them is being bowed down to. Not one of them is being told that they're worthy. The focus isn't on them at all. Compared to the ones seated on the throne, they're nothing more than just furniture in the room. All the focus is on the one who is seated on the throne. He's the one who receives the attention. And look at the attention that he receives. Look at verse 8. These incredible four living creatures with their six wings and eye-covered bodies day and night never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And if you look at verse 9, you'll see that whenever this happens, the 24 elders get up off their thrones and they fall down before the one on the throne in the center and they lay their crowns before him and they say in verse 11, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. And are you taking this scene in? As we go through the door, are you taking this scene in of these fantastic creatures in this bright light and people worshiping the Lord? This whole scene, everything through the door is giving us a picture of God's complete and utter sovereignty. It teaches us that every tiny cell and every living being and every atom and every created thing are made by the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And who is seated on the throne. But not only does he have complete and utter sovereignty over every created being and thing, he has complete sovereignty over all of time and history. 
Take a look at chapter 5, verse 1, and look at what the one seated on the throne is holding. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And what you find out if you read on into chapter 6 and 7 is that the one seated on the throne is so sovereign, he holds in his hand a scroll that when the seals are broken and this scroll is unrolled, God's plan for the rest of history just happens. He is so sovereign that He literally holds history in His hand. And if you're keeping this whole thing in historical context, if you're looking through the door and you're from one of these seven churches or you're from our church, you might be wondering, what does that have to do with this? What does all the stuff about heaven and the one seated on the throne and lightning and rainbows and strange creatures and elders saying, holy, 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 what does any of that have to do with my suffering here on earth today? That could be one response that you have. The other response you might have is, wait a minute. If God's that immense, if he's that powerful, if he's that holy, if he's that brilliant, If he's that sovereign, why isn't he doing something about our suffering? Why didn't he stop the bomber on Monday? Why doesn't he let me live freely as a Christian in Iran? Why doesn't he just show himself to my colleagues so they can stop mocking me for being a Christian? Why do I have to put up with all of these difficult people at Christchurch Liverpool? Why can't we have children? Why is my father sick? Why? And that might be the other response. God is so immense and powerful, why? Well, regardless of your response, could you imagine someone this powerful? Could you imagine someone this glorious, this worthy, this sovereign ever sharing his throne? Look what happens. Despite this scene through the door in heaven being so impressive and ordered, something, or better yet, someone is missing. Did you notice that in verse five, in chapter 5, verse 2? And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. And it seems that John, who's witnessing all this, feels that tension like we do. There is something lacking here. There is some missing component, and John feels it so deeply that he weeps and he weeps as the search goes on for this missing component, this missing person. And so the tension that you feel after Monday's attack the tension that you feel when you read these headlines, the weeping that you've experienced having left home, the pain that you feel when you're persecuted or mocked at work or on the campus, those are all indicators of what we see here. That when Jesus Christ is missing, when Jesus Christ is not at the center, society breaks down. Chaos and persecution and tragedy ensues on earth. 
When Jesus Christ is missing, we lack the strength to face sickness and loss and failure. And so whether you're asking the question, what does that have to do with this? Or maybe, why doesn't God just do something about it? Either way, the tension that you're feeling is the same tension that John's feeling here. That when Jesus Christ is missing, there will always be weeping. There will always be searching. Searching for hope. Searching for answers. Searching for comfort. But I want you to see what happens when Jesus Christ is found. And when Jesus Christ is placed on the throne. Take a look at verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now this lion of the tribe of Judah, this root of David, we're going to see in just a moment, is Jesus Christ. And it's Jesus Christ who is God in the flesh. Jesus Christ who is God who came and lived on earth and has triumphed here on earth. But did you notice this? That the one who is seated on the throne, the one who was and who is and who is to come, who lives forever and ever, who is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, he shares his throne with Jesus Christ. He shares his sovereignty and his glory and his honor and his power with Jesus Christ. This lion who's triumphed. John is told that a powerful lion has triumphed. And this powerful lion is able to open the scroll and break its seven seals. This powerful lion is invited to share the throne at the center of the heavenly throne room where all of this activity is centered and that he is the one who's going to put the rest of history in motion yet when john turns to see this lion when he turns to see this powerful one this one who's going to receive sovereignty when he turns to see him and this is so profound he doesn't see a powerful mighty lion Instead, he sees a weak little lamb looking as if it had been slain. Look at verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne. And here's what this image communicates. It shows us that the way the lion triumphed here on earth was not through strength, but through weakness. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of Jesse, two very strong images, is also the weak sacrificial lamb. Remember that call to the seven churches is to endure, it's to overcome, it's to be victorious. But yet look at how Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, overcomes. He overcomes in the same way that we do. It's through weakness. It's through suffering. Suffering is how you overcome. And here's how we know we can overcome. This is how we know we can this is how this is what heaven, what happens through the door, has to do with earth, with what happens here. Here's how we know. You see, in verse seven, this weak, slain, but paradoxically powerful lamb takes the scroll. And do you know what we're getting a glimpse of here when he grasps the scroll and he's there on the throne? It's a picture of the moment. When the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ is highly exalted to the highest place and He's given the name that is above every name. This is the moment when He who had given up His authority for a little while by humbling Himself to the point of death on a cross is now lifted up and exalted and given all authority in heaven and on earth. 
And he takes the scroll and he begins to reign and to rule and to exercise the rule of God the Father, the Lord Almighty. That's the moment that we're witnessing. And do you know what happens when that happens? When he takes the scroll, the whole throne room, when Jesus Christ is exalted to the highest place, the whole throne room erupts with worship. And the very same beings whose complete and full attention was on the Lord Almighty, who is seated on the throne, the one who was and is and is to come, who everybody's attention was on, they all begin to worship the Lamb. And they sing a brand new song. All through the Old Testament, there's new songs that show up. And those new songs were written to celebrate God's work of saving His people. When God redeemed His people from slavery in Egypt, do you know what they did? They wrote and they sang a new song. They sang a new song all about how God saved them and redeemed them. And just like that, this new song that they sing in heaven is a song about God's redemption of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Look at the song in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Do you know what this new song shows us? It shows us that it's not enough to sing just any song. Any old song won't do. In fact, a lot of songs will actually turn us away from this truth. Will actually turn us away from heaven. Will turn us away from Jesus. A lot of songs will turn us completely away from any sort of redemption at all. I mean, John Lennon can write a pretty good song. Taylor Swift has been known to write number one hit after number one hit. But these lyrics, these lyrics in chapter 9, verse 5 and 10, they weren't written by a Beatle. They weren't written by Ed Sheeran or Elton John. These lyrics weren't even written on earth. They're written in heaven. And do you remember how John Lennon's song begins? It begins, the first line of imagine is imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. That's what he's wanting you to imagine. Those lyrics turn you away from heaven. They turn you away from redemption. That song's trying to get you to save yourself. It's trying to get humanity to save itself. Even to worship itself. It's saying that somewhere within us is the power to overcome, the power to triumph. It's saying that something in us is worthy to be worshipped. But through the door, there's a new song. There's a worship song that tells us that Jesus Christ has overcome sin and death. That the slain Lamb has been raised from the dead and has ascended to the throne and He is worthy to be worshipped. Worthy to sing about because He saved you by shedding His own blood. You see, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He defeated death. He defeated your sin. He paid for your sin. And look at what it does for you. Look again at verse 10. 
You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. When you trust in Jesus Christ, when you sing his song of redemption, this text says that you become a king and a priest. And this is what is amazing about singing Jesus' song. Becoming a worshiper of Jesus, somebody who worships Jesus, means that you're becoming as glorious and as holy as he is. And so do you want to overcome trials and persecution? Do you want to overcome complacency and division? Do you want to overcome tragedy? Then this is the song that you can sing. This is the song that really does change things. This is the song that changes you and the song that if more people sang it, the world really would become better. Worship Jesus Christ. Because when you worship him, he places you into his kingdom. Which we'll see in Revelation chapter 21, a new kingdom, a place that will have no trials. No persecution, no complacency, no tragedy, no bombs, no broken relationships, no sickness, no mourning, no crying, no pain. If you want to overcome those things, then worship Jesus. And what about your sin? Do you want to overcome your sin? Do you want to be free from all that makes you feel dirty and stained? then worship Jesus Christ. Sing his song of redemption because when you do, he makes you a priest. When you sing his song, he makes you as pure and as holy and as set apart as a priest. And so are you starting to see what happens if we sing heaven's worship song? We begin to bring some of what happens there through the door to right here on earth. We actually begin to bring heaven here to earth. And here's what this shows us. The tension that you feel here on earth. The poverty, the persecution, the trials, the sickness, the weaknesses, the complacency, even bombs. What we need most to answer all of that tension is what's happening in heaven. That's what we need the most. In other words, we need to bring some of heaven here to earth. And one of the ways that we bring heaven to earth is to worship on earth just like they worship in heaven. And what I mean by that is not a particular style of musical worship, but both the heart attitude of worship and the reason for worship. When we look through the door into heaven's throne room, there's an attitude of complete and utter humility in response to God's complete and utter sovereignty. What we see through the door is that real worship means I'm willing to give God everything. Did you notice that these four fantastic creatures give God all of their time? Did you notice that? It says day and night, they never stop worshiping God. And did you notice that the 24 elders are willing to give God all of their glory and their power and their wealth and their position? That's what they're doing when they get up off their thrones and they take their crowns off and lay lay them at his feet. And so to truly worship God means I'm willing to give him my everything. Here's what it looks like to really worship God fully. It means Jesus becomes the most important priority in how I spend my money. It means Jesus Christ becomes central in what career I choose and where I choose 
to work and how many hours I work and so on. Jesus becomes the priority when I decide what I'm doing on a weekend. He becomes the priority in my conversations. It means Jesus becomes the person that we talk about most in our home with my spouse, with my children, with our guests. To worship Jesus means I'm willing to give Him all of my time, all of my wealth, all of my glory, all of my power, all of my position, all of my everything. Secondly, when we look through the door into heaven's throne room, we see the reason for worship. And the reason for worship, the reason that we can, the reason we want to give God our worship, the reason that we give Him our everything is because He's given His everything for us. He's laid down His life for us. He shed His blood to purchase us from every tribe and nation and tongue and nation. And, and nation. And so will you sing His song? Will you worship Him? Will you worship Him not only with your singing, but with your whole life, with your everything? If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ before, if you've never truly worshipped Him, I want to invite you to worship Him for the first time today. To sing His song of redemption for the first time. To claim what He's done for yourself. And as we sing this next song, let this be the moment that you stop worshiping yourself or your career or your money or your position or your relationships. Let this be the moment that you stop trusting in your own strength to overcome and to start trusting in Him. And as we now turn to worship Him, I want to finish by looking at how this whole scene of heavenly worship climaxes. It says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands. And ten thousand times ten thousand, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship Jesus Christ and the one who sits on the throne.